Hello there and welcome to Season 2 of Tales from a Cult Insider. I am, once again, your insider and former unwilling cultist, Jared Garrett. I am here to whine at you about my childhood. Not true. I'm here to tell you stories. Here's your recap for those of you coming in a little bit late. I was born and raised in a cult. A real, honest-to-goodness commune and cult. It started out in the 60s as an offshoot of Scientology, called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. I mean, that sounds like a cult name, doesn't it? It was one of the more infamous cults in the UK and the USA for a little while. When I was born, the cult broke apart into those dedicated to the process, so to speak, and those who made a new culty commune called the Foundation Faith of the Millennium, which evolved over the years and finally morphed into Best Friends Animal Society. I'm here to tell you all about being a kid in this somewhat strange secret religious commune. And let me let you know right now, I, along with the 30 other kids who were treated essentially like orphans in this cult, helped build Best Friends Version 1. Over five years of forced summer labor. Good times. That comes up later. I'm also here because I have more anger to work through. So some of these episodes are going to serve as opportunities for me to work through some of what hurt then and what still hurts. I want you to know I'm not out to get anybody. I am not out to have any kind of bad effect happen to those people doing great work at Best Friends Animal Society. This is not an expose. What this is, is me telling stories about growing up in this cult and sometimes working through some of this anger so I can feel the emotional gift of forgiveness and release from that anger. As always, your questions will be answered, so don't hesitate to ask. You can contact me at jared at jaredgarrett.com with your comments and your questions and hopefully not your complaints, but we'll see what you got. I also do speaking engagements and you can reach me at the same email address to chat about that. Maybe your questions and their answers will even be featured on the podcast. Let's get started. You may have noticed that there's an entire other season that you haven't seen yet or listened to yet, or maybe you have and you're excited to be back. If so, welcome back, my loyal listeners. Woo! All right, that was a little loud. Apologies. <clears throat> so, uh, it is season two. So this is episode 25. It is called, I Will Not Be Erased. So I would like to read to you a section of a book by Hal Herzog. Now, Hal Herzog seems like a good dude. I did a bit of internet stalking. I have zero problem with Hal Herzog. I have zero problem with anybody in the story that I'm about to read to you and, tell, and talk to you about. But I do have a problem with being erased. So here we go. Book by Hal Herzog. I don't believe it was a bestseller or anything. It's called Some We Loved, Some We... Or, let's see. Yeah, it's like, it's about animals. Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. Why It's Hard to Think Straight About Animals by Hal Herzog. So, in this, I mean, he's got a... He, he's, it's about our relationship with animals, and so it's appropriate that he might have an encounter with someone with best friends. Now, again, not an expose. Not me trying to take some sort of action against best friends. But I want you to see, try to imagine how it makes me feel as a person who helped build version one of Best Friends over five years and have this happen. So Hal Herzog encounters somebody named Michael Mountain at some bar or something. So <clears throat> here's how the exchange went. Are you ready for this? It goes like this. Uh, something like, uh, he introduces himself, I'm Hal Herzog. The person he encounters says, Michael Mountain, Best Friends Animal Society. Oh yeah, I think I've heard of that. Out in the middle of nowhere, right? In the desert? 
Yes, Kanab, Utah, says Michael Mountain. We order beers. He goes on to say. So he says, I asked him about best friends. He says that it was founded 25 years ago by a ragtag band of animal lovers who dreamed of a place where homeless dogs and cats would never be euthanized. He tells me that it has grown to a $35 million operation, the same size as PETA, that Best Friends rescued 6,000 animals during Hurricane Katrina, that they are no longer Best Friends Animal Sanctuary, but have reorganized as Best Friends Animal Society, a nation network of people excuse me, a nationwide network of people and grassroots community organizations, all devoted to saving animals. Very impressive. And Hal Herzog says, I am impressed, but I am more impressed when our discussion turns to how people think about animals. He gets it, dot, 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 dot. He talks about some of his own moral lapses and so on and so on. And then, excuse me. So, um, they talk about uh, a little bit of... um, some of the history of the uh, of the of the best friends and such so he gives a description of best friends and it's kind of taken from uh the website which i will read again not an expose but please hear this read this from the perspective of one of the young people who was shipped out there every summer which we talked about in the last season to do work every summer in tent cities for two months in the summers of southern utah okay it says, Best Friends offers daily tours for the 30,000 visitors that stop by every year. I think that number's higher now. But Michael has arranged a special behind-the-scenes tour for us. Our guide is Faith Maloney. I know Faith. She's in some of my stories. A cheery 65-year-old English woman who, knows, who seems to know the name of every one of the 1,700 rescued dogs, cats, pigs, horses, rabbits, donkeys, peacocks, guinea pigs, and parrots in residence. Wait for it. Michael and Faith were part of a small group referred to reverently as, quote, the founders. Best friends, and this is, I'm quoting right from the book, and <clears throat> so this is the story that he was told. Best friends grew from the vision of some young idealists in the mid-1960s who had a desire to do some good in the world. It's not factually false. We were not hippies, Michael warns me. If anything, we were the anti-hippies. For, our exa- for example, our rule was no drugs. True. After a stint in the Yucatan, the group became involved in politics, religion, and social services before disbanding, but some of them reunited and discovered that they had a common interest in saving animals. That is technically true and factually false. All things considered, it's false. What are you going to do? In the early 80s, the group stumbled on Kanab Canyon. The amount of just... uh, I don't know what the word is, but the just surgical removal of story is hilarious, which they renamed Angel Canyon. Despite its remoteness, they decided that the canyon was just a place to establish a home for animals no one wanted. They did not foresee that their small shelter in southwestern Utah would become one of the nation's largest animal protection organizations, and so on and so on and so on. So there we go. So that's from the book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat by Hal Herzog. Really interesting book. My wife loved it, and I have no problem with it. Uh, with the book itself, I just, yeah, I mean, they did give birth to us. They did spend money driving us out. We did dig miles and miles of trenches, which I've told stories about. And we built all kinds of things. I helped plumb some of those houses. I helped tap water tables. I sink a water supply pipe uh, for about 5 to 10 miles from 18 inches down to 3 feet for an entire summer. So it's odd to be 
a little bit kind of overlooked in this case. Now, overlooked may be a little bit, a bit of a generous statement, but let me get into Best Friends history and found and and and, and founders and let, let's just go right to bestfriends.org, the about section. Again, I have nothing against them. I just this I don't want to tear them down. I'm not looking for some sort of action against Best Friends because I love what they're doing. But this is not okay. Why can't they own the fact that they had a bunch of kids and treated us like orphans? Or maybe instead of just saying like treating us like orphans, they could say, and we had a bunch of kids uh, between many of, of us original founders. And we, were, we, we brought them into our, the, our organization and into the work. And we made them a part of the process of building our first version of Best Friends. Why can't they just say that? Why do they have to just overlook us? It's They were overlooking us our whole lives in the dang cult, and now they're overlooking us today. And it's insulting, and it's not cool, guys. But here we go. Here is the About section. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it's basically Best Friends History. It's called The Story of Best Friends is One to Be Shared with Anyone Who Might Be Inspired by the Power of a Belief. And Anybody Who Thinks That Whitewashing is Okay. And this isn't whitewashing as in coloring over people of color with white, I'm saying whitewashing us right out of the story. Here we go. It says this at the beginning. 35 years ago, a group of people made a leap of faith to realize a vision that they had long shared to create a sanctuary for abandoned and abused animals. You know what? If that was their vision all along, they never told us. This was the logical extension of the rescue and advocacy work that they had been doing for years. Fair enough. That little did they appreciate that their endeavor would catapult them to the forefront of a fledgling movement to, the, to end the killing of 17 million dogs and cats who were dying in our nation's shelters annually at the time. That is tragic, and I'm so glad that they've done so much good. With little money, no master plan, few construction skills, and countless lives hanging in the balance, they set out to address a local aspect of a much larger problem. What they created instead was the largest note of dot and that's great. But boy, that's a romantic representation of what was actually true. Okay, so it says really nice things about, you know, helping out with these animals and stuff like that. But here we go. Here's a, here's a paragraph. The story of the founding of best, friend and of best Friends and of its creators can be compared to other pivotal social movements. John Muir and the Sierra Club. Okay, so he was in a cult. And when ki parents had kids, they were separated from their parents and put in the children's center. And when parents didn't want to give up their kids, they were kicked out. That, does, that doesn't sound right. Jane Goodall and the Jane Goodall Institute's Preservation of Species. Don't you mention you and Jane Goodall in the same sentence. I'm sorry, you are doing great work down there, but Jane Goodall is a freaking saint. It also talks about, it is also a story comparable to the beginnings of other iconic brands like Apple and Nike. So true. Apple and Nike have spread across the world partly because of their use of sweatshops, much forced labor for no, very little compensation. Well, they had much forced labor from us with no compensation. So bonus to you guys. You're sort of accurate there. And so on and so on. Oh my. And then the last sentence of that paragraph is, the story of best friends is one to be shared with anyone who might be inspired by the power of a belief and how that belief can change attitudes, transform lives, and create a better world, and they don't have an Oxford comma, and I judge you for that. Not on this good Christian paragraph, not on this good, good, good Christian about section. Anyway, use it in an Oxford paragraph. But yeah, and that's true, and I really, really admire what they do and the force of will that it took to make that, 
but why can't you cop to us? Here we go, why Best Friends was founded. In 1984, the founders of Best Friends made a promise to one another and to the animals already in their care that they would build an animal sanctuary in southern Utah where they could dedicate their lives to housing and finding homes for unwanted pets while advocating for the importance of no-kill. Fantastic. In 1984, I was 10. Right? I was 10. And I was about to be moved to Dallas, to the kids' center, to where all of the kids were going to their faith school. And I was one year away from my first time being shipped out to Southern Utah to help build Best Friends Version 1. Okay, this, this, was all, this is all news to me that they made a promise to one another that they would build this animal sanctuary. I, just found, I was just told that, hey, in Angel Canyon, we, we're, we're, that's where our headquarters are going to be. And we're going to start our animal sanctuary um, stuff, our efforts and stuff. And that's great. Uh, so all these money that they were begging on the streets that went to start going towards the uh, the animal sanctuary stuff. That's that's nice that we knew that. But where where were we? What were we doing in in relation to the animal sanctuary? We were being shipped out every summer, and we were suffering for not having our parents around because our parents were being told to de- utterly and totally devote themselves to the cult and to. Uh, basically scraping money out of people's hands and out of their pockets and wallets on the streets of uh, main cities and uh, in airports and stuff like that. Instead of having parents, we were just grouped together like orphans and, and little orphan Annie. So, yippee. Great. Not true, though. Not a true story. Here we go. It says, unlike the beginning of other nonprofit organizations, Best Friends was not launched with much fanfare. I mean, Fact. There was, I mean, I mean, I was taught some funny songs. There was no official board leadership, strategic plan, or outreach strategy. Financially, the founders had very little money. Yeah, true. They had salted away what they needed to make an acceptable offer on the property that would become the sanctuary in Kanab, Utah, and were earning some income off the sale of their previous property in Arizona. Not yet. That came later. I'll talk about that in my story about my escape from the cult. In terms of designing and constructing the space, the founders had very few practical skills to meet the needs of their current animal population, never mind the scale of what it ultimately became. So that's true. That's all absolutely true, right? I mean, except for the fact that I think they sold their property much later and they got some into some financial difficulties there. But you know what? This is a really important story, and it's a really good aspect of the story that they did by force of will, by working together, by being creative and just figuring things out, make an amazing operation with our help. Here we go. The founders were a motley crew. Mm-hmm. They were a motley crew. Francis Batista, good dude, tried to, I mean, made a, played a joke on me and made me feel like I was drowning, but still a very good dude and very devoted to his, his, his animals. Francis Batista's, Batista's background in real estate led him to discover the land in southern Utah for the sanctuary. London educated architecture graduate Paul Ekhoff, a stepfather of mine, my mom's last husband, straightened and reutilized old nails to create the early bunkhouse and facilities for the animals. Really? Okay, cool, I didn't know that. Cambridge-educated philosophy major Gregory Castle, who's got a beautiful tenor voice, may I say, built the roads and became the electrician. Faith Maloney, known as Chief Dog, that's funny, I've never heard of her refer to that. She's a fun lady, uh, temper, but she's a fun, fun lady. Rode herd on the dogs while construction of the sanctuary was underway. 17-year-old Judah Batista, Francis's son, Worked with Diana Asher to care for the cat. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't. <laughs> Judah found out that he was Francis's son after he was 17. When Judah was 17, he lived in Dallas with me. Moving on. He's the only young person referred to in this group, in this description. It doesn't say like he was raised with 29 other kids or so on. 
in in where where six kids or six young men lived in the same room. Doesn't say anything like that. I mean, granted, that'd be a little off-brand and off-track and off-story. But they could say something like, Judah Batista, along with many of the other founders' kids, uh, came out and helped a lot. We appreciate their work. Why not even that? That would be almost enough for me, honestly. It says, <clears throat> he slept in a shed at night while construction of the facilities was underway. Romantic. Yeah, that's fun. A shed being the steel building. It was large. But nonetheless, they had a really fun, nice place for him. It wasn't nice. They had a rough place for him to sleep, and that's great. But not when he was 17. I don't know where they came with up, up with that number. Maybe during the summers when he and the rest of us were being shipped out there to help do work. Obviously, Judah's a great guy. A really good man who's done, who's dedicated his life to this extraordinary work that they're doing. And, and he's, he's a very public face uh, of many aspects of best friends, as far as I can tell. But that's just not true. Okay. What? <clears throat> Excuse me. Quite literally, the founders say they relied on a set of construction manuals from Time Life. True. What these remarkable and passionate individuals lacked in expertise, they made up for, for with sheer hard work and determination. Absolutely true. And their connectedness to the animals and one other. Heroic. Heroic. They were great. So this, this, this quote from Francis. We had no visible means of support. We were hung out to dry. We were all in it together. Take out, we were hung out to dry. Nobody hung them out to dry except for them. This was their choice, and they should they should understand it and own it because it was beautiful, right? They they decided to go it alone, among other things. You could ask some residents of Kanab of what it, what it was like to deal with these folks early on in their their arrival and their organization there, uh, just north of Kanab. Um, and so here we go. Let's move on to a little bit. It talks about an, uh, the, the 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 population of the animals. Um, they have um, group said about fundraising. It's, oh boy, here we go. Uh, with their duty to the animals foremost in their mind, the group realized they had to create a formal entity that could generate a reliable source of income. As if the group has just been reorganized, but that's not the case. The group had been around for nearly 20 years at this time. Here's what they say. The group said about fundraising. They set up tables in front of grocery stores in Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Salt Lake City to raise sufficient money and in-kind donations to feed the animals and keep the lights on while developing a rudimentary rudimentary mailing list no no they had branches in las vegas like they say in dallas and a couple of other places who were full-time dedicated to acquiring money so that the this money could be sent to to the headquarters and and stuff they weren't going out on their own they had grunt workers they had infantry people frontline people working their butts off, and that crazy person who ran the Dallas branch worked them to the bone, to misery. And as far as I've heard, and I'm hoping somebody can correct me if this is wrong, the people walking out of the Dallas branch because of their misery, their abject misery at the way she, they were being treated by this lady who ran the Dallas branch, that was the beginning of the cascade of the closing, the ending of the cult and a financial difficulty, and that's actually what began, seemed like it was the catalyst for them eventually throwing off all cult stuff and becoming just best friends, which happened in 1994. So whoop de doo here we go. The daily tally of money was deposited into the organization's bank account to keep best friends operational. Yeah, sure, sure. No mention of branches and us, all those poor, poor people working their butts off for this thing. Co-founders Michael Mountain and Stephen Hirano created Best Friends Magazine, along with my brother Matthias, who crushed it. He got it going and systematized some stuff. Um, 
highlighting the positive news about the animals at the sanctuary. Lucky for the group, it wasn't long before they discovered that so many others felt as they did about the animals, and so on and so on. The founders' belief system. While the creation of Best Friends Animal Sanctuary grew out of a desire to address the senseless killing of animals in shelters, the group was ultimately motivated by a desire to live a life of kindness, compassion, integrity, and a connection to something greater than themselves. Definitely not their kids, though. That's not in there, but that's true. United in the belief that all life has intrinsic value, except for their kids, the founders worked to put aside personal ambition and ego to stay true to the goal of ending the killing. The result was something far greater than they had hoped, a better life for themselves and those with whom they shared their lives. <clears throat> so the founders reflect back on themselves as a unit, while the story of Best Friends is one that is truly unique in the world of other well-established national or international animal welfare nonprofits, da da da, they rock star and so on and da da da. So, when asked about their individual role in the success of the organization, the founders disavow any personal accomplishments to the importance, which is good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Supporters of Best Friends say the founders were and still are living a dream. However, Francis Batista described the day-to-day -day management of a startup sanctuary with an ever-growing population of homeless animals and lack of necessary staff and resources to succeed more like living a nightmare. You said it, sir. Yet they persevered. They maintained a strict focus on mission and did what was required to save the lives of more animals. And here's a quote. What is it about this group that is so attractive? The integrity runs right through us. We do what we are. Stephen, you're a good man. That's a quote from Stephen Hirono. Stephen's a good, good man. But what the BS, man? If there's integrity, mention the kids. Not any time do they mention the kids. So here we go. The founders of Best Friends began their work 20 years before they founded the sanctuary. They came together in the turbulent 1960s in an effort to sort out personal conflict and live a better life. Factually true, they don't mention that they had splintered off of Scientology. They saw the problems that bedeviled the larger society as, a scaled, up, as scaled up symptoms of the pettiness and problems that trouble and destroy personal and family relationships. While the obvious answer of kindness was a glib toss-off for most, the discipline of observing a life committed to kindness was of a different order of commitment. What kindness? What trust? What integrity? I didn't trust anybody growing up. Partly my fault, maybe, but I'd been beaten up. I'd been ignored and overlooked. I'd been emotionally abused. How was that kindness? It says here, the very simple principle of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, was and is their guiding philosophy. Good heavens. May be true, but boy, oh boy. In those 20 years before, I just did air quotes. In those 20 years before the technical founding of Best Friends Animal Sanctuary, that was not how it was lived. I'm sorry. It was misery. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you was and is their guiding philosophy. And they extended this essential guide to life of the to life to the animals with whom we share the planet and especially to those whom we share our, with whom we share our homes. Okay, and then it's so on and uh, more philosophy stuff, the spiritual side and so on and so on. It mentions uh, Cyrus and Anne Mejia. Uh, Cyrus is the guy who beat the crap out of me when I was nine living in Arvada Den uh, near Denver. It says of the 31 individuals who began Best Friends in 1984 plus about 30 kids and plus upwards of 60 or so adult human beings who were dedicating their lives, their daily lives, to going out on those streets and asking for money for the kids, for the, for, for the animals, for all this stuff. And some of them were amazing at it. They could bring home $1,000 in a day because they were that good and that devoted and that passionate. 
what the actual cannoli? But here we go. Of the 31 individuals who began Best Friends in 1984, I'd like to know who they're listing there. 15, can, probably one of them is my mother. 15 continue to bring their own special gift to the whole that is Best Friends. Some play a very active role in the day-to-day -day aspects of the organization, while others who reside at the sanctuary interact with the thousands of visitors and volunteers who make their pilgrimage each year to Angel Canyon. They work, the, the work begun over 30 years ago by a group of individuals dedicated to living life by the golden rule will continue on long after the founders have retired. True, and that's great. For the animals whose lives... Da, 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 da. Okay. And then the last quote is this. And it's a true quote. And it says, quote, when people can no longer say it's only a dog, that is social change. Absolutely. Animals are... are they absolutely require and are deserving and are entitled to our reverence, to our kindness, to our utter devotion to keep them alive and keep their lives good. How we treat the weakest and the neediest in this world is a reflection of who we are. So I agree with that. But I have never beaten a nine-year-old kid. And while I have, I believe, released... Um, mostly my, my anger and frustration and bitterness at Cyrus for beating me up when I was nine. I will not act like it didn't happen. Forgiveness does not mean it didn't happen. It means that I will not be dragged down by anger. But acting like it didn't happen and pretending that you haven't got this dark temper behind you and maybe he's overcome his temper. I wouldn't mind an apology just to show that I am not overlooked and forgotten, that I'm just nobody. That, that I'm not just nobody, that would be delightful. I wouldn't mind it one little bit. But again, this is not to get an apology. This is not to force best friends to uh, accept their history. It's a complaint, my friends. This is a complaint podcast episode and an argument against being erased from existence. There is no mention of me and my other peers, the only one who's mentioned is Judah. And the way he's mentioned is romanticized to the point of utter cod swallop. My friends, we must not erase others. We must not ignore and overlook their condition, their contribution, who they are, why they are, how they feel, what we're doing to them. We must not. And I've just utterly and totally encapsulated the message, the only good message from that terrible, terrible evil book, 13 Reasons Why, where that main character, Hannah, gets everything she ever wanted from her suicide. Suicide is shown as the right choice, the heroic choice, and she gets everything she wanted. So that's good. Suicide is evil. It's wrong. You should not commit it suicide. It's bad. The other message, though, of we should be aware of the effects we're having on people. We should be kind to people. We should be actively and intentionally kind and good to people. That is a good message. It's a powerful message. We must not overlook others. We should be actively engaged in their lives. We should do our best to be critical of ourselves and honest with ourselves and see where we've made mistakes. Best friends made a mistake when it comes to me and my peers. They destroyed, for many of us, for me particularly, our ability to trust for many years. I'm a 45-year-old man. I trust people now. But I don't know what it is to be a son. I see my kids hugging my wife and I say, I never did that as a son. 
And I, it's hard for me to do it now. I, I mean, I hug her like crazy, but she is my romantic partner, my life companion, my eternal friend and wife. So I don't know what it's like to, to, to hug a mom. Many people in this world don't. But you know what? Best friends, those founders, they're great. They do wonderful things. But it's because of them that I don't have that. But at minimum, at the actual very minimum, what could be done is they could say, we had kids. Of course we did. We were young and attractive. We were a group of people doing a different and unique thing. And we had children. And what a wonderful blessing they were to come and help us out and make make a difference and build things and take care of cats and dogs and help rehabilitate them and scoop, in my case, literally two tons of dog poo. And maybe they could acknowledge also those adults, those frontline adults who were pushed out and forced out. They joined a cult commune thing to try to make a big a difference in this world. And they were forced into hard labor on hot and cold and messy and dirty streets, surrounded by people who didn't care and they had to interact with those folks and try to get them to give them money. The very worst kind of work you could possibly do. How degrading and mortifying that was. But they elevated it and transcended it and made it a beautiful sacrifice. Frickin' best friends acknowledge those guys. And acknowledge me and my kids. That's what I say. Me and my kids. Me and my, my family. My friends. That's all I have to say. I admire you. Folks who run Best Friends, I admire all of you volunteers and employees. I admire the work you do. Boy, I admire the people I grew up with who stuck with Best Friends or went back to it to help with that admirable, totally holy work that they do. But for once, maybe they could acknowledge us. And for once, maybe they could get off that high horse and say something like, you know, we treated you poorly. Because remember, when my mother asked me how I felt about the way I'd grown up, I told her that I felt upset that I had had uh, aspects of a family taken from me. And she said, you know what, Jared? F you and stalked away. Look at yourselves. Check yourselves. Be kind for the love. You know, it's going to, it's going to, if it doesn't haunt you, I don't understand that. And if it's haunting you, get it out of your system by acknowledging us. And if nothing else, at least this is off my chest. Next episode's coming up. It's called Random Double Standards. It'll be fun. It'll probably be fairly short. But there were random double standards throughout this cult life that I had and throughout all the things that happened in, in the organization. I'm happy to have you back on the podcast. I'm happy to be back. Not all of them will be this fiery and flamey. Love you guys. Uh, stay tuned and remember to mark a review uh, and share this with your friends. And uh, we'll have a great time learning and telling stories together. Bye. See you next time.